I'm dermatologist and hair specialist Dr. Jeff Donovan, and I'd like to welcome you to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. Welcome to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast for the May 16th, 2022 issue. This is Season 2, Episode 1. Evidence-Based Hair is a podcast produced by the Donovan Hair Academy and highlights new research in the field of hair loss. We'll use our time together not only to talk about what's new, but we'll reflect on how this new information ties in with the accumulating information we've come to learn in the past. And we'll think carefully where we're heading in the future as a hair loss community. I'll use various studies each week as a pivot point to discuss key diagnostic pearls and treatment tips that hopefully allow us all to become better practitioners. This podcast was created for practitioners of various backgrounds, but regardless of whether you care for patients with hair loss or simply care about the topic of hair loss, this podcast will be of interest. This podcast was created for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. The third Monday of each month is dedicated to scarring alopecia, and today we'll review seven studies from the past month or two in this particular area. We'll talk first about frontal fibrosing alopecia and four important studies. We'll talk about the role of vitamin D in FFA. We'll talk about laser ablative resurfacing in FFA and some of the safety considerations in a patient who underwent ablative laser resurfacing without knowledge that she had FFA. We'll talk about a new variant of FFA, the pustular variant, and we'll talk about the prognostic significance of various types of FFA variants. Then we'll move on to talk about lichen planopilaris, and we'll talk about vaccine reactions, COVID-19 vaccine reactions in patients with LPP. And then we'll talk about two new medications, IL-23 inhibitors, in the treatment of dissecting cellulitis. Pretty interesting evolving field of using psoriasis medications in the treatment of dissecting cellulitis, and I think this is important information. The references for all of these studies are in the show notes that accompany the episode. So let's begin then by talking about vitamin D in FFA. Are you routinely measuring vitamin D levels in hair loss patients? Well, there's some controversy in terms of how relevant it is, but it seems like in most types of hair loss, measuring vitamin D levels is probably relevant. Certainly in alopecia areata, low levels of vitamin D have prognostic significance. Vitamin D has some implication in androgenetic hair loss with low vitamin D being associated with more aggressive forms and, and worse prognosis. Vitamin D deficiency has been identified in many scarring alopecias. So it's pretty hard pressed to convince me that vitamin D measurements are of no use in hair loss. And it seems that most patients should have a vitamin D, a 25-hydroxyvitamin D level drawn. What do we know about vitamin D in frontal fibrosing alopecia? Well, not a whole lot. And so I'd like to review with you this interesting paper by Arasu and colleagues in JAD International from April. Certainly vitamin D has an important role in the immune system, and so it's important that we understand the role of vitamin D in immune-mediated hair loss. 
And the role of vitamin D is not all that clear in frontal fibrosing alopecia. If we think of FFA as a close cousin of LPP, or lichen plano pilaris, and many certainly view it as a subtype of LPP, then it's probably relevant to be thinking about vitamin D because vitamin D levels are thought to be lower in lichen plano pilaris compared to controls. The role of vitamin D in scarring alopecia in general is not clear-cut. There are some studies that suggest that vitamin D levels in scarring alopecia are similar to controls. Some studies suggest that it's lower than controls. A 2021 study by Connick and colleagues from the Cleveland Clinic showed that vitamin D deficiency was common in lichen plano pilaris. Patients with LPP had an average vitamin D level of 24.6 nanograms per mil, and this translated into about an eight-fold increased risk of vitamin D deficiency compared to alopecia areata controls. There are other studies which suggest that there's not much difference in vitamin D levels compared to other types of hair loss. So it's an evolving field. Vitamin D studies are, are challenging. We need big numbers. We need to compare for race, age. We need to compare uh, control for obesity. There's lots of different things that, that need to be controlled for in really good vitamin D studies. Arasu and colleagues performed a retrospective study of patients with FFA that they saw between March 2013 and February 2020. So they had 100 patients with frontal fibrosing alopecia, and they compared this to 100 patients with female pattern hair loss. They showed that the vitamin D levels in FFA were fairly similar to the vitamin D levels in female pattern hair loss. 68.9 nanomoles per liter in FFA, 65.96 nanomoles per liter in female pattern hair loss. And they controlled for age and race and really didn't see any differences. In the FFA group, 97% were Caucasian, 2% were Asian, 1% were of African descent, in the female pattern hair loss group, 83% were Caucasian, 16% were of Asian descent, and 1% were of African descent. 20% of patients with FFA had suboptimal vitamin D levels, and 20% of female pattern hair loss patients had suboptimal vitamin D levels, and none of these patients had vitamin D, severe vitamin D deficiency. So all in all, the authors concluded that Vitamin D levels in women with FFA didn't differ from vitamin D levels in women with androgenetic hair loss. So this is a small study, 100 patients in each group, but it gets us thinking, and it's an important study. It certainly seems that, at least in Australia, patients with FFA don't seem to have lower vitamin D levels compared to female pattern hair loss. This study certainly needs repeating with FFA patients from other countries. I have no doubt about it that there'll be different results. That's just how these studies seem to work. There are subtleties in these sorts of studies. These are the challenges of doing vitamin D research. The incidence of vitamin D deficiency in Australia is about 31%. The incidence of vitamin D deficiency in other countries, especially of northern European latitudes, is anywhere from 50, 60, 70%. And so when you have different vitamin D deficiency 
in different countries, you're bound to have some slight differences in results, at least one would predict. The nice thing about this study is that it used patients who weren't on vitamin D. And that's really challenging. When you think about FFA patients in our clinic, most are on vitamin D. It's challenging to find patients with FFA who aren't on vitamin D. And so that's one of the good things about this study and one of the things I really liked. We really do need larger studies to really understand the relationship between vitamin D and FFA and whether vitamin D deficiency impacts the severity of FFA in any way. What we can't conclude here is that vitamin D has no role in FFA. What we can conclude is that vitamin D levels are similar to female pattern hair loss. To really understand the role of FFA, we would need a control group perhaps that's different. It'd be nice to know how vitamin D levels compare to the general population. In this study, we're comparing FFA to not the general population, but to patients with female pattern hair loss. And we know that low vitamin D levels exist in female pattern hair loss. So we're, we're starting out with a comparative group that we know has low vitamin D. And there's an accumulating body of research that suggests that low vitamin D is very relevant to female androgenetic hair loss. It's a complex field, but it seems that patients with severe androgenetic hair loss have lower vitamin D levels. So we're using as a comparative group in this FFA study a female pattern hair loss group that we know has low vitamin D and that we know uh, low vitamin D has prognostic significance. These are challenges of doing vitamin D type studies. So the authors conclude in this study that there may be no additional requirement to measure vitamin D levels in patients with FFA compared to other forms of alopecia. I found that sentence in their conclusion challenging because it's true that there's no additional requirement. So whatever you do in female pattern hair loss, you should do in FFA. That's true. But what we don't want to read into in that conclusion is that there's no requirement to measure vitamin D. Essentially, whatever you do in female pattern hair loss, you should do in FFA. And what we should do in female pattern hair loss is measure vitamin D. And so the real conclusion of this study is it still makes sense to measure vitamin D levels in frontal fibrosing alopecia. And vitamin D levels in FFA might not be all that different from lichen plano pilaris. The average or mean vitamin D 25-OH vitamin D level in this study was 68. The mean vitamin D level in Connick's study of lichen plano pilaris patients was 61. And so we need larger studies, but I don't think we can really conclude that vitamin D levels in FFA are really all that different from lichen plano pilaris as it stands now. But clearly we need bigger studies. So let's stay with FFA and look at a really interesting study looking at a complication, and that is facial scarring in a patient with FFA who underwent ablative resurfacing, a cosmetic procedure to help wrinkles. What sort of cosmetic procedures are your patients with FFA undergoing? Certainly doesn't seem to be a problem with Botox. Doesn't seem to be a problem with most fillers. But do we really understand other cosmetic-type procedures? 
I don't think we fully do, and we need a lot of research, and that's why this particular study is so valuable. In this week's question of the week on our website, we talked about microblading in FFA. That seems to be pretty safe. In other words, the rate of complications aren't that different from baseline in small studies. But what do we know about cosmetic procedures in patients with FFA? Well, we don't know enough. So Soon and colleagues published a very interesting study of a patient with unrecognized FFA who developed extensive scarring after laser resurfacing. And she had laser resurfacing to address wrinkles and aging. This was a 63-year-old healthy woman. She had no previous history of viral or bacterial skin infections, which might increase the risk of complications. She had not used isotretinoin, which can increase the risk of scarring in these aggressive ablative-type procedures. She underwent fully ablative laser resurfacing with an Erbium 2940 nanometer laser. After the procedure, she was told to use paraffin and Cetaphil cleanser for seven days. On day six, the areas of erosion, areas of erosion developed on her forehead her bilateral infraorbital areas, her lip area. It was swabbed for bacteria and viruses, and these were negative. By day 12, complete re-epithelialization was achieved, and redness set, settled in for the next five weeks. So this is a paper which is available free online in JAD case reports, images available with Creative Commons license, and the authors show the redness that developed early on with this procedure, if you're not familiar with ablative procedures, these are procedures where there's quite a bit of redness and injury that develops to the skin. In the first few days and weeks after the procedures, these are uh, quite red, quite frightening. And you can see the images online. But by week seven, extensive scarring developed in this patient, mainly over the forehead and around the mouth. The physicians in this study took some steps, which I think were really, really important. And I think that the steps these physicians took really led to a good outcome in the end for this patient. So this this story has a, a better ending than it might have otherwise if these particular physicians didn't have the expertise that they did. So when they recognized the scarring that was developing in this patient, they immediately undertook various scar revision protocols, including non-ablative CO2 laser treatments, the use of a strong topical steroid under suspension, a steroid ointment, silicon gel was applied to the area around the mouth. And what was remarkable here is that 16 weeks after the resurfacing procedure, there was some resolution of this scarring. And these images are available online and shows very nicely the fact that the redness went away and this scarring on the forehead and around the mouth dramatically improved. This is a really valuable paper. First, the authors are sharing complications. They are sharing a sensitive subject whereby a patient with FFA had unrecognized FFA, had an ablative procedure, had a complication, and this is how they manage the complication. What's so valuable here is the care that this patient received. And I think when complications like this happen, it's really important that we collect ourselves, ground ourselves, and figure out the best way to deal with these complications. 
it takes real expertise to deal with complications. I think that one of the reasons this patient had such a good outcome in the end was the expertise of these physicians. And so certainly we need caution before we undergo laser resurfacing procedures in patients with scarring alopecia. FFA can be very challenging to identify. I think this paper has a valuable lesson, and that is that when we're evaluating a patient for these ablative resurfacing procedures, certainly we have to ask about risk of herpes in the, in the past, so we know whether to give the patient antivirals, how to monitor for antivirals, uh, do they have cold sores, have they had you know abnormal scarring in the past, what medications do they take, have they been on isotretinoin recently. So cosmetic physicians are very well aware of the standard history that they need to ask patients. But I think what is really valuable here is a reminder to cosmetic physicians that are doing these procedures that not everyone is an expert in identifying early FFA and it can be pretty challenging. Patients come in for wrinkles. They don't come in necessarily for their hairline to be examined. But I think any history of recent eyebrow changes or any recent increase in shedding of hair or any recent changes in the hairline might prompt someone uh, who is doing laser resurfacing procedures to evaluate for FFA. These are challenging. And uh, there's a lot of patients with early FFA that are missed all the time. Uh, It's a very challenging condition to diagnose in the early days. It's not difficult to diagnose later on, but in the early days, eyebrow loss, hair loss above the, around the ears, and hairline changes are three simple questions that may prompt some identification of patients that might otherwise be missed. But the message here is that we probably shouldn't be doing these laser resurfacing procedures in FFA. Not everyone who has these laser resurfacing procedures is going to have this uh, good end of the story or good outcome. And so it's probably best avoided until either the disease settles or other settings are used. And the authors point out in this paper that these were fairly mild settings that were used. So let's continue with FFA and talk about a new variant of FFA. Are you ready for a new variant? Well, I am. I'm fascinated by these FFA variants. There's certainly many, many variants of FFA that exist. And here we have a new variant, a pustular variant of FFA. Lobato, Barizo described this pustular variant of FFA. Now, FFA doesn't normally have pustules. It has redness and scale around hairs, not pustules. And so the authors of this study describe a 65-year-old woman who presents with a 10-year history of FFA. She had never received treatment, so the pustules aren't due to treatment. She hadn't had any injury or traction alopecia to the area which give pustules. She hadn't received any other treatment for any other condition that might give pustules. She wasn't applying thick cosmetic products that might give a folliculitis. But she had these pustules, and she had a long history of pustules, and these were increasing in number. She didn't have pustules on any other body site. And when the scalp was examined, it had typical features of FFA with hairline recession, perifollicular erythema, and scale. But she had pustules around the hair follicles. Bacterial swabs were negative. Fungal swabs were negative. Bacteria, of course, can give pustules. Tinea can give pustules, but these were negative. A punch biopsy showed typical FFA features. 
What was different in this case is that were pustules, intraepidermal and intrafollicular pustules. They were filled with neutrophils, a type of white blood cell, which we would expect in a pustule. Gram stain was negative. PAS stains were negative. So no bacteria, no fungi. The patient was treated with topical clobetazole cream, and the pustules went away in a month, and there were no flare-ups observed after three months of follow-up. So it's an interesting study, and I think we should all be adding the pustular variant of FFA to our list. The authors question in their discussion whether this is a variant of this LPP, folliculitis decalvans phenotypic spectrum, if you're not familiar with what I'm referring to there, there is some thought that some patients with folliculitis decalvans and neutrophilic scarring alopecia transition to lichen plano pilaris, sometimes the other way as well, but maybe there's more overlap to these conditions than we think. And so with these pustules, the authors wonder whether this pustular variant of FFA is in fact a part of the LPP folliculitis decalvans phenotypic spectrum. Well, I think that's certainly possible, but I think we have to be careful because there are many features of this presentation which make us wonder whether, in fact, it's not. This patient had a very long history of these pustules, which would be unusual for a folliculitis decalvans type presentation and a phenotypic spectrum. The bacterial swabs were negative, so there's no staph aureus here. And uh, it responded very easily, very well to clobetazole. And so there's nothing wrong with wondering if this is part of the LPP folliculitis decalvans phenotypic spectrum. That's certainly valid. But I think we need to keep an open mind here with this variant. There's lots of neutrophilic dermatoses and neutrophilic skin conditions. And we know that LPP and FFA are very closely related to another cousin, and that's psoriasis. Uh, and so is there more overlap between various types of psoriasis with this neutrophilic presentation? I don't think we know, but um, I don't think we can really conclude, nor should we pigeonhole ourselves into thinking this is part of the LPP phenotypic spectrum. Of course it could be, but it's a very interesting clinical presentation. Long-standing pustules go away quickly with clobetazole. No bacteria, no tinea, no fungus. So finally, let's talk about FFA study number four. And again, we'll stay on the subject of FFA variants, a study from March, April 2022. So there are many FFA variants. There's typical ones and atypical ones. The typical ones include what have been referred to as type 1, 2, and 3. Type 1 is where you have this linear band of hair loss across the front where you can take a marker or a pen and draw a line following the outline of the hair loss. It's a band, sharp band. That's type one. Type two is a zigzag pattern. And type three is a pseudo fringe pattern where it looks like traction alopecia. There's this accumulation of hairs in the frontal hairline that don't seem to be affected, but there's hair loss behind it. That's the pseudo fringe pattern of FFA. And this seems to have good prognosis. So there's these typical variants and then there's these atypical variants. Atypical variants are the Variants that don't really fit what the textbooks describe. There's a variant uh, affecting the front and the back with significant involvement of the occipital area or the ophiasis area, and that's called the ophysiac 
orophiasis predominant pattern. There's a plaque-like pattern which affects the area just above the ears. There's a male pattern with predominant temporal recession. There's a new epsilon-shaped pattern which affects the frontal hairline and then goes behind the ear and goes upwards behind the ear uh, like a boomerang. And then there's the pustular pattern that we just described. So there are lots of these atypical variants, but remember that there are really a lot of variants of FFA. There's the occipital fibrosing alopecia variant with hair loss just at the back. There's eyebrow-only FFA where patients have just eyebrow hair loss. There's body hair loss only where the only thing a patient has is body hair loss. There's a discoid lupus-like FFA variant. There's a male FFA. There's a premenopausal FFA. There's an adolescent FFA. There's FFA associated with LPP. There's familial FFA where strong family histories exist. There's drug-induced LPP. Uh, Anti-estrogens, um, tamoxifen can induce L FFA. There's many drugs that are associated with FFA. There's post-surgical FFA, FFA coming after facelift procedures. There's FFA associated with uh, menopause. Then there's FFA associated with early menopause. There's FFA associated with forehead grooves and facial atrophy. There's FFA associated with rosacea, contact dermatitis, lichen sclerosis. There's an FFA in skin of color associated with lichen planus pigmentosus. There's an aggressive form of FFA which moves very, very quickly. And I think there's an FFA associated with systemic autoimmunity, certain conditions, vitiligo, uh, Sjogren's. That's controversial, of course. But there's all these variants of FFA. And I just mentioned this because I think we really want to keep an open mind as we research FFA to realize that there's there's 35 types of FFA. And so it shouldn't be a surprise that there's these variants. And so when you hear FFA variants, one shouldn't think, oh, I need to think about a variant. Yes, we need to think about a variant. FFA is full of variants. There's so many different presentations of FFA. And so this study looked at three atypical variants, the male pattern variant of FFA, the plaque type pattern with hair loss just above the ears, in front of the ears, and an ophiasis type pattern with hair loss at the back of the scalp, as well as the front of the scalp, but a predominant ophesiac pattern with hair loss at the back. And so this study by Roca and colleagues, a very nice study. It's available free online with their Creative Commons license. These images are available. And it shows the male pattern type of FFA with predominant temporal hair loss, the plaque type with hair loss just above the ears, and then the ophiasis type pattern with hair loss at the back, as well as the front, but a strong presentation of hair loss at the back in the so-called ophiasis pattern. And so the authors performed a retrospective review of 97, 97 patients with FFA, seen from 2011 to 2019, and 27 of those patients, 27.8%, had an atypical pattern. So 75% of patients have a typical pattern of FFA, 27.8% have an atypical pattern. 12 had the male pattern of FFA, Seven had the plaque type with hair loss just in front of the ears. And eight had the ophiasis type pattern. So a small study, but valuable lessons here, and that's why I want to present it to you. The mean disease duration was seven years. 
Six patients had facial papules, these bumps on the face. Four of these patients had the male pattern. Two had the ophiasis-type pattern. Six patients had lichen planus pigmentosus, this pigmentation that occurs on the face. Three of these six patients had the male pattern, and three had the ophiasis pattern. The ophiasis-type pattern was associated with poorer prognosis than the other types. Hairline advanced at 2.25 centimeters per year, moving up, up, up. The male pattern advanced at about one centimeter a year, and the plaque type advanced at about a half a centimeter per year. The plaque type, or FFA associated with hair loss just in front of the ear, had the best prognosis. This pattern didn't have loss of eyebrows. 90% of patients with the male pattern had loss of eyebrows. 90% of patients with the ophiasis pattern had loss of eyebrows, but not the plaque type. The plaque type was not associated with facial papules and was not associated with lichen planus pigmentosis. And so in this small study, it seems that there is a gradation from worse prognosis to better prognosis. Worse prognosis in the ophiasis, slightly better in the male pattern type of FFA, and the best prognosis with the plaque type of FFA. The ophiasis type pattern had facial papules, eyebrow loss, and lichen planus pigmentosis. The plaque type did not have facial papules, no eyebrow hair loss, and no lichen planus pigmentosis. And so be on the watch for these variants of FFA. I think we have to have a very open mind to all the different variations that exist with FFA. Uh, it certainly is not one condition. It is this condition that is a spectrum of different types of clinical and histopathological presentations. So let's move from FFA and talk about lichen planopilaris, talk about vaccine reactions. We've talked on past episodes about the COVID vaccine affecting alopecia areata. We have not talked about the COVID vaccine and lichen planopilaris and scarring alopecia. Do some of your scarring alopecia patients have flares with COVID vaccines? Certainly some of my patients do. There has not been much in the medical literature about flares of lichen planopilaris, folliculitis decalvans, frontal fibrosing alopecia, etc. with COVID vaccines. What I worry about most with vaccines is a small chance of telogen effluvium. We're on the watch for alopecia areata, but that seems to be a very, very low risk. So what do we know about flares of lichen planopilaris? Well, there's one study in the medical literature, Diab and colleagues, published in Dermatologic Therapy in March. Before I talk about lichen planopilaris, I'd like to highlight that a variety of lichen planus-like reactions do occur after COVID vaccines. And there are an enormous number of reports in the medical literature about lichen planus, this skin disease with purple polygonal papules and plaques that's itchy after COVID vaccines, oral lichen planus is noted to take place. And in fact, there seems to be about a threefold increased risk of developing oral lichen planus after COVID vaccines. I thought that was really, really interesting. Why is there this increased risk of oral lichen planus? 
in patients receiving COVID vaccines? Well, I don't think anyone knows, but certainly with this type of increased risk, we have to be thinking about other lichenoid reactions. There's this whole spectrum of lichenoid reactions that happen after COVID vaccines. So Diab and colleagues reported a 60-year-old woman who developed lichen planus on the face and lichen planopilaris on the scalp 14 days after her AstraZeneca vaccine. Now, the patient's past medical history was notable for lichen planopilaris years ago. It was successfully treated with methotrexate and corticosteroids, and it was in remission. And in fact, the patient hadn't required any medications for some time, but within 14 days of the AstraZeneca vaccine, she had a flare of her disease. She was given interlesional corticosteroids and tofacitinib, and things settled. And so I think this is a valuable study for us to be aware of. First, just how much increase these lichenoid skin reactions, rashes, lichen planus, oral lichen planus seem to be with COVID vaccines. We don't have a lot of information on how COVID vaccines affect scarring alopecia. I certainly don't think it's a huge risk. But I think we need to be aware of it, and it certainly warrants more study because some patients with scarring alopecia do have minor flares with COVID vaccines. And certainly patients with scarring alopecia do have flares with COVID infection as well. But I think this is an important subject. The risk of hair effects seems to be the greatest with a telogen effluvium after the COVID-19 infection itself. So after COVID-19 viral infection, a significant number of patients, 20 to 50% with Delta uh, and earlier variants of COVID-19 had hair shedding. Don't really know what Omicron and the Omicron variants give. It's probably a little bit less, but shedding is the highest when you get infected. Vaccines may have a slight increased risk of telogen effluvium. It's a small risk. And there may be a small risk of inducing alopecia areata or a flare of alopecia areata. Again, we don't really have good numbers on what the risk is, but it's, it's very small. As far as scarring alopecia, we really don't know. It, it warrants more study, but this study reminds us that lichenoid-type reactions are not that, un, not that impossible after COVID vaccine. And oral lichen planus affects 2% of the world. And so if oral lichen planus has increased 2.5-fold with COVID vaccines, and that means that dermatologists and dentists and family practitioners and internists are going to be seeing a bit more oral lichen planus after COVID vaccines. So I think we need to just be aware of this literature and support our patients with scarring alopecia if there are any types of flares after COVID vaccines. And these should generally settle quickly in most cases. So from lichen planopilaris, we turn to dissecting cellulitis. Dissecting cellulitis is a scarring alopecia that affects young people. Affects patients in their early 20s and 30s and can be quite debilitating. There are a number of treatments, especially antibiotics, isotretinoin for dissecting cellulitis, but it's a challenging condition to treat and not everybody responds well to isotretinoin and antibiotics. So what are the other options that we have available to us? Well, two recent studies support the use of IL-23 drugs, 
which are used often in psoriasis. So let's take a look at this, looking first at risinkizumab and then tildrakizumab. So dissecting cellulitis is a condition that causes tender, boggy nodules to develop on the scalp. These drain pus. It's painful. It smells with these draining pustules. Swabs of these pustules often come back sterile, meaning they don't grow any bacteria, bacteria which is a surprise when you see these patients first because you think that this pus, sometimes serosanguinous discharge, should be filled with bacteria, but it's not. It's often sterile, unless it's secondary infected. Isotretinoin and antibiotics are first line. We don't fully understand what causes this condition, but it's thought that there's a collapse of the follicular wall, and this promotes this chronic inflammatory state. Second-line agents include incision and drainage, corticosteroids, TNF inhibitors, adalimumab especially, have been studied and been helpful in dissecting cellulitis, and I use them often. But what do we do when patients don't respond to isotretinoin, don't respond to antibiotics, don't respond to TNF inhibitors? Well, oral dapsone has been described. Dapsone inhibits neutrophils, and this is a neutrophilic scarring alopecia. There's been studies looking at scalp excision, laser hair removal, but we have IL-23 inhibitors and IL-17 inhibitors on that list as well, which I'll describe now. Dissecting cellulitis often coexists with other dermatologic conditions. Hydradenitis suppurativa, which is boils in the armpits and the groin. Acne conglobata, a very severe type of acne affecting the, the back, sometimes the chest. Pylonidal cysts, these cysts in the, in the buttocks area, in the gluteal cleft. So these areas drain pus, they're painful, it's embarrassing. And about a third of patients with dissecting cellulitis have one of these conditions, hydradenitis, acne conglobata, pylonidal cysts, and we call this the follicular occlusion tetrad. And we think that the pathogenesis of these conditions is all related in some manner although none of them are really fully understood. The best research, by far, is being done in hydradenitis suppurativa, and we think hydradenitis is a closely related condition to dissecting cellulitis. And the research being done in hydradenitis suppurativa is growing exponentially. The options available to these patients is changing dramatically which is really important because this is a debilitating condition when you have boils and discharge in the armpits, in the groin. And so whenever a new study comes out in the hydradenitis suppurativa field, what hair loss experts immediately do is say, hey, I wonder if that treatment can be used in dissecting cellulitis because after all, hydradenitis is a very closely related condition to dissecting cellulitis. And often, if something works in hydradenitis, it works in dissecting cellulitis. And so IL-17 inhibitors and IL-23 inhibitors, new biologic agents which block these chemicals in the body, interleukin-17, interleukin-23, are showing great promise in hydradenitis suppurativa. And now they're being studied in dissecting cellulitis. And being showing, shown to have some benefit in dissecting cellulitis. So this is good news opening up 
an array of new options. So guselkumab, or Tremphia, was studied in 2020, and this was a study published in the Journal of Dermatology and Dermatologic Surgery, showing that IL-23 inhibitor was helpful in a patient with dissecting cellulitis. So 2020 is our first study of this group of IL-17 and IL-23 inhibitors, or TH17 pathway targeting drugs. Secukinumab, or Cosentex, and I, I mentioned the generic and the trade name because these drugs are new to many people, and some, pay, some practitioners are more familiar with the trade name, some are more familiar with the generic names, but this is a new field, and I think that it's the nomenclature and the names are somewhat confusing, so it's, it's helpful to have both names. And so a 2021 study showed the IL-17 inhibitor, secukinumab, was helpful in a patient with dissecting cellulitis, and this was published in the Journal of Drugs and Dermatology. And now we have two new studies. Rizenkizumab, Skyrezi, and this was a study in the Journal of Drugs and Dermatology 2022 March by Babalola, looking at the use of rizenkizumab in dissecting cellulitis. And this was a 65-year-old African-American male who had a 13-year history of dissecting cellulitis. The patient had failed or had minimal response to topical clindamycin, doxycycline, steroid injections, antibiotic-type washes, and isotretinoin, but had a benefit with Rizenkizumab, Skyrezi. And here, our latest study, study number four, is Tildrakizumab. Illumia in the U.S. and Illumetri in the European countries. A lot of these IL-17 and IL-23 agents have the same name in North American markets and European markets. Tildrakizumab has a different name in the U.S. compared to the European market. Illumia in the U.S., Illumitri in Europe. And so Awad and Sinclair published on the use of Tildrakizumab in dissecting cellulitis in the May online issue of the Australasian Journal of Dermatology. The patient was a 23-year-old male who failed isotretinoin, erythromycin, steroid injections. But after two doses of subcutaneous injections with tildrakizumab, four weeks apart, there was a reduction in pustules and tenderness and some hair growth. And so I think this is a, a nice study adding to this body of literature showing that we have a new class of drugs that are worth exploring for dissecting cellulitis. And one of the reasons... I feel that it's it's worth studying for dissecting cellulitis as it's showing such great promise in hydradenitis suprativa. And dissecting cellulitis is a very challenging condition in some cases, not all. Some patients do great. But it's a challenging condition in some cases, and so is hydradenitis. And some of these new drugs are changing how hydradenitis is treated. And these are debilitating conditions. These impact social interactions, uh, self-confidence, self-esteem, these have tremendous psychological impact on patients with, with both hydradenitis, pyelonidal cysts, dissecting cellulitis, 
acne colangiobatter. If we have new options for patients with these conditions, this is really wonderful. It's going to change the lives dramatically of patients. Now, some patients are going to do well with oral antibiotics. Some patients are going to do well with short courses of prednisone, steroid injections, uh, isotretinoin. Some of these first-line agents are still first-line agents, but these IL-23 and IL-17 inhibitors are certainly on the list. Right now, they're third-line agents. They may move up to second-line agents, but TNF inhibitors are still second-line agents. But any new drug which arrives on the market is a third-line agent, in my opinion. And then if it earns its status as a second-line agent, it becomes a second-line agent. And if it earns its status as a first-line agent, we, we give it the first-line agent status. These are on the list now, so important for us all to know about IL-17 and IL-23 inhibitors, and it seems that this TH17 pathway has relevance in dissecting cellulitis. If you're not familiar with the TH17 pathway, the T helper cells were thought for years to exist in several forms, TH1 cells, TH2 cells, and T regulatory cells. Well, over the last few years, it's realized that there's a new kid on the block, and that's this TH17 T helper cell. And it's stimulated by several cytokines and chemokines, including IL-23, to produce IL-17 or interleukin-17. And so this TH17 T cell may have particular relevance in dissecting cellulitis and hydradenitis, just like it does in psoriasis. So stay tuned. So that's it for this week. I want to thank you so much for listening and welcome to season two. I'm looking forward to being with you during these next three months of season two throughout the summer. We talked today about vitamin D levels in FFA and the challenges of doing vitamin D studies, but the fact that vitamin D levels seem similar to uh, female pattern hair loss. We talked about a complication in a patient undergoing ablative laser resurfacing who happened to have FFA that was unrecognized and some really wonderful expertise from the clinicians led to a good outcome in the end. We talked about a new variant of FFA, the pustular variant, and we spoke about the fact that we shouldn't be surprised if there's new variants. FFA is not one condition. There are 40 different types of clinical presentations of FFA. And clearly, we're pretty good at recognizing moderate to advanced FFA of the frontal hairline. What do we call these subtle variants where there's just hair loss at the back? We call it occipital fibrosing alopecia, but it's easily missed. What about a patient just with eyebrow hair loss? What about a patient with underarm hair loss that is told by the family physician, you're just getting older? Maybe that's a variant of FFA that's being missed. So there's all these variants. We talked about atypical patterns of FFA and the fact that one of them, the pattern of hair loss at the front and the back with predominant hair loss at the back called the ophiasis type pattern of FFA, may have poor prognosis. We talked about the possibility of COVID vaccines to induce lichenoid skin reactions. Lichen planopilaris can flare in a small percentage of patients. More studies are needed in this area, but be on the lookout certainly for lichen planus and oral lichen planus with patients receiving COVID vaccines. It's a fascinating field and the risk is increased significantly above baseline. And then we talked about this new class of drugs, these IL-23 inhibitors as well as IL-17 inhibitors in treating dissecting cellulitis and the fact that this will open up a new array of options. These drugs are now 
on the list as third-line agents. And so in my mind, isotretinoin and antibiotics are first-line with steroid injections. Antibiotic uh, antibacterial washes followed by TNF inhibitors, adalimumab especially. But the IL-17 and IL-23 inhibitors are right there on the list as third-line agents to be considered next. Let us know what you think about evidence-based hair anytime. If you'd like to connect with our office, please do so. We are at info at donovanhairacademy.com. Next week, we're back with the fourth week of the month of May. And that's a potpourri of studies that have been published in the last month or two. And I'll look forward to welcoming you back here on Evidence-Based Hair. <laughs>